Good morning, friends, and thank you, choir. Really beautiful work this morning. Randy, Mary, worship leaders, great, great work. Always a beautiful service here at First Baptist. Uh, my name is Jeremy Hall, and it is an absolute joy to be with y'all again this morning. I, I was thrilled uh, to get invited by Pastor Nate to come back and spend another Sunday with y'all. Uh, a quick note, I've been fighting with something all week, a cold and pollen and allergies and all of it all at once. So if my voice starts to taper out, uh, Brad up in the booth knows just to push it harder. So bear with me. But uh, really excited about the passage this morning, the lectionary passage for today uh, is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Uh, Myra read it wonderfully just a few minutes ago. This passage is commonly known as the Great Commission. And how fitting is it that uh, the calendar has us looking at this passage while some of your faith family are off doing the work of mission? Very, very cool. So let's take a look at that passage again really quickly to set us up for what we're going to talk about this morning. So uh, verse 16 is where I'm going to start. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Just a quick textual note. This is the first time that the author of Matthew has had to pen the 11 rather than the 12. It's a significant moment in the book. To the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What a fascinating line. We're going to have to come back to that. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So, I want to take a few minutes and break down these words that uh, Jesus gives here so that we don't miss them, right? That a lot of times with familiar passages, especially ones as familiar as the Great Commission, we can uh, let the words kind of roll right over, right past us, and not let them challenge or change us. So here in this very brief encounter at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gets to have the last word, and he makes four statements to his disciples. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, baptize, make disciples, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and I am with you. These are the four parts of our commissioning, our co-mission, the mission that we as the church are all on together. The first statement is kind of credentialing, right? Jesus can send us on this mission because he has all authority on heaven and earth. Jesus is Lord of all of it. And you can hear other scripture resonate with the statement, can't you? Uh, think about John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things that were made were made. Nothing that was made came into existence without him. In him was life, and that life 
was light to all mankind. How about Ephesians 1, uh, 20 and 22? When he, God, raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also the one to come, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything and the church. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything into his hands. This is a consistent statement in the New Testament. How about Jesus' second statement? Verse 19 Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Barry Howard is a uh, ministry mentor and friend. He's currently the pastor at uh, what used to be known as Wyuka Street, Wyuka Road Baptist. It's now the church at Wyuka. He recently uh, wrote about this passage, and he, he did such a good job. I'm just going to quote him. So, quote, in English translations... We emphasize more of an imperative that we drop what we are doing and go. While some will be called to be pastors, evangelists, and missionaries who veer from their career path to follow the call of vocational ministry, the overwhelming majority will engage in incarnational ministry through their chosen career path. In the Greek translation, there is more of a sense that the sharing of the good news is as you go. In other words, we are to engage in the enterprise of disciple making as we go, wherever we go, and whatever we do, end quote. The work of ministry, of evangelism, discipleship, mentorship, missions, is the call to all Christians, not just the trained or the ordained or the church staff, I, for the record, I wasted a lot of time trying to make that third one rhyme with the first two. I really wanted it, but I just couldn't get it to work. Uh, this sort of thing should be obvious to us Baptists. It's part of our tradition, part of our identity. Our DNA is to reject clericalism, the idea that the, the people with the degrees and the fancy robes do all the important work. And the embracing of the concept of the priesthood of all believers. Our tradition, and many others, but ours specifically, has always understood that we are all called to the work. Statement number three, which is really a part of statement number two about making disciples, verse 20, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. I read this, and my mind immediately jumps all the way back to Exodus, when God at Mount Sinai tells the people, now, if you obey me fully and keep my commandments, that's a big if, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me 
a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's Exodus 19, 5 and 6. As far back as the start of covenant worship of Yahweh by the rescued Hebrew slaves, their identity was linked to their obedience. If you obey me fully, you will be my chosen people, a nation of priests. And don't, don't get confused. That's not to say that your salvation is based on works, but, but think about what James, the, the brother of Jesus and the martyred leader of the Jerusalem church says in James 2.26, faith without works is dead, right? You've heard this before. Faith without works is dead. Uh, maybe another way that we could say it would be something like faith without works dies. Faith without works will die. We could make those sorts of plays with it too. The work of discipleship is learning for ourselves and helping others learn what it means to follow and obey Jesus. Learning to do the work that enlivens, emboldens, that grows our faith. Statement number four, verse 20. Jesus says, Surely I am with you, even to the end of the age. Your Bible senses should be tingling. Flags should be going up. Bells going off. The hyperlinks should be activating here. This is a classic promise from our God. We see it all through the scripture. Deuteronomy 31.6, God says to the people, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, whoever your them is. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Next book, Joshua 1.9, right at the start of the book. Have I not commanded you? God says, don't you remember? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, says God, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you away. Those are just some examples that popped up for me. But there's a big old list, right? Even just, uh, I was sitting in Pastor Nate's office a little while ago. He has hung um, in their Hebrews 13.5, which says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. This promise from Jesus is to be with us in the work, no matter what. Because Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is God, Jesus is alive, Jesus is with us. Jesus has the authority to command and commission the church. Are you familiar with, this is an old phrase, uh, the term the church militant? Give me a nod or a shake. Have you heard this before? Church militant? Yeah, we've got a good mix of nods and shakes. Cool. It's an older phrase, and there are some obvious uh, complications and somewhat violent language there, but the idea is that the church on earth is the church at work, on mission, that it's active, that it's advancing into enemy territory. So acknowledging that the term is a little bit problematic, I want to play with it a little bit today. I want to pull on that metaphor. So with this in mind, we're going to jump a few pages back in Matthew to chapter 16, which is sort of a different kind of commissioning. It's another commissioning story from Jesus. This is when Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi 
and he asks his disciples, who do people say I am? They replied, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Jesus stops them. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, as he is prone to do, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, here's another sort of commissioning moment, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This is a familiar story, but it's actually a really weird story. And, and its weirdness, it's obscured by time and language and culture, because uh, when we read the name Caesarea Philippi, it doesn't really mean much to us. Maybe the only thing it cues up is this story. But uh, there's a lot going on here. Caesarea Philippi is not just another place on the map that Jesus and his disciples might visit. It's about 26 miles north from where the last part of this narrative took place. It's about a nine-hour walk from where Jesus last was. So in this chapter, Jesus has had a run-in with some Pharisees, and they want him to offer a sign. Give us a sign, something to prove that he is who he claims to be, to which Jesus basically just responds, yeah, you've seen uh, what you need to see. And then he gets in a boat with his friends, and they cross the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples, they don't know where they're going. So they arrive on the other side, and without Jesus giving them any explanation, at least not in the text, of why or where they're going, he starts to head north. He walks north for nine hours towards a place that they should never go. A little more interesting now, right? So what's the deal with Caesarea Philippi? Well, first off, you might notice that that does not sound very Hebrew. This doesn't sound like a Judean name. And that, that's because it's not. It's not a Judean town. Originally settled by Alexander the Great is Peneus, thou matter in a second. Now with Judah and the surrounding regions under the control of the Roman Empire, the city is renamed Caesarea, something like Caesar Town, and later Caesarea Philippi, under the vassal rulership of the Judean kingdom of the Herodians. So here, in the Promised Land, is this little town named for a foreign emperor, a self-proclaimed prince of peace, savior of the world, god-king emperor. And you see why this might be a little off-putting to the local population. And by the time of Jesus, Caesarea Philippi has grown into a proper Roman city. It draws everything towards itself. It's a center of gravity. It pulls all the area's resources and energy and attention into itself and exerts all sorts of power on the region around it. It's a proper Roman city with shops and baths and government buildings and theaters and temples, two of which I think are of particular interest for this story. The first of the two temples I want to point out is a temple to Caesar Augustus. Massive 
marble temple constructed by Philip, one of the Judean kings, son of Herod the Great, where people would go to worship the emperor. This is one of three such temples that this Jewish king would build for Augustus. This place is sort of a a nexus between politics and religion, a place where worship and government are one in the same. The second temple that's of particular note was built on this site by the Greeks. Remember, Alexander the Great conquers it, calls it Paneus, builds a massive temple to the god Pan, who is a, um, a goat god, you might remember, a pan flute. That's where that comes from. So he builds this massive temple to the goat god Pan. This is one of the central locations for the worship of Pan in the ancient world. People would travel from all over the Roman Empire to be part of these festivals of worship, these festivals where you would worship Pan by engaging in sexual acts with goats. How fun is that? It's not very kosher. The disciples are probably at least scandalized, probably terrified. In this temple, it was built at the base of a cliff where there's this massive gaping cave in this wall that descends into darkness, steeply into the earth. The worshipers of Pan believed that this was an opening to the underworld and that spirits could come and go through this gate. They called it the gates of hell. Now, if you go there today, it's a tourist location. You can go as a tourist in the Golan Heights to the gates of hell. It sounds lovely. Bring your kids. Um, And right next to this gaping hole, so you've got giant goat god temple, sheer drop into the earth, who knows how far, they're pretty sure all the way to the underworld, and then a sheer cliff with all these natural sort of shelves, these grottos, these holes in the cliffside. Most of them natural, but then people came along and cleaned up and carved out more, and the whole cliffside is studded with idols and statues and busts to gods from all over the world. Incredible display of worship, offerings to spirits, forces of nature, the emperor, altars to all sorts of ancient various gods, religion, superstition, and idolatry at its finest. So you can imagine how it might have been like to be one of the disciples. These young men, some of them just still teenagers, following their rabbi north on a road that they're pretty sure leads there. So they arrive, a dissident rabbi and his band of misfit Jewish boys in a city full of Roman occupiers. And it makes sense to me, in my mind, that this scene would take place in this sort of chaotic space, the the emperor worship over here, goat god worship here, the gates of hell and people casting prayers and petitions down that pit, the wall of a thousand gods over on this other side. Can you feel it? The the chaos, the noise, the, the static in the air, the crowds, the language, people from all over the world, corrupt political power, demanding attention, demanding obedience, demanding worship, the cultural expectations of the upbringing of our Jewish disciples and the expectations 
of the pagan world all sort of crashing into each other. Consumerism, twisted sexuality, depravity proudly on display, and religion and idolatry everywhere. You can feel it, right? The tension, the suspense of this moment. All of these different worldviews, opinions, imperatives, expectations, performances, preferences, so many voices speaking all at once. We can relate, right? Am I talking about first century Caesarea Philippi or 21st century America? In this place of chaos, be it first century Caesarea or our world today, Jesus makes the statement, I will build my church in, in the view of all of the gods, in the view of the gates of hell, in the view of Pan and the Caesar, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's talk about gates for a minute. What is the purpose of a gate in an ancient walled city? You, you would build your city, start as a hamlet, and you would expand, and you'd erect these big, strong walls around your city to keep it safe with very few openings to allow people to come and go. Ordinarily, city gates would remain open to allow for transit and commerce, but when the city is under siege, you close the gates. Gates are primarily defensive. Hell is on defense. Hell is on defense in relation to the church militant, the activated church, the missional church, the working church. Hell is on defense against the church. And Jesus says they don't stand a chance. With this in mind, Jesus gives the church its marching orders from this mountaintop in Galilee. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, not to the gates of hell, to me. Go, and as you go, baptize and make disciples. Teach what I have taught you, and remember, I am always with you. Encountering Jesus here, the disciples do a reasonable thing, right? The disciples worship their resurrected Savior. And then the author of Matthew, he writes something truly amazing. He says, the disciples worshiped him, but some doubted. That's verse 17. When the disciples saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, how dare you? How dare you doubt me? You have no place in my kingdom. Depart from me into outer darkness, for I truly say to you, I never knew you. No. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, even to the end. Perhaps Jesus doesn't seem phased by the reality of the doubters because he understands that the work will lead to faith. These disciples, like us, they're still being formed. And our formation comes through what we do. Faith is caught far more than it is taught. We are formed by our rhythms, by our actions, by what we give our time and attention to. 
Our faith is formed by doing the will of God. Our faith is formed in obedience to Jesus. Our faith is formed in the work, in the service, in acting out of love, in forgiveness, in advocacy, in seeking justice, in caring for those at the bottom, in the rhythm of church life, of fellowship, of worship. It's grown in the work of evangelism, discipleship, and missions. In my own life, I have found that my moments of greatest doubt have come when I have allowed my faith to be entirely mine, you know, personal, private, intellectual, that's a dangerous one for me, or something entirely spiritual. It's in those moments when I'm not really doing the work of the kingdom, when I've allowed myself to get sort of stuck often heady intellectual or spiritual spaces, that I find my connection to the kingdom atrophying. But my most intense, most real, most formative encounters with a living Jesus have come in times of obedience and imitation. I find Jesus when I seek, when I knock, when I follow, when I do the work for which I was commissioned. My faith expands in response to actually going and doing and seeking Jesus. In those moments where I choose to do the work, or when I make the choice to be obedient, not when it comes easy, but when you choose to be obedient, even when I don't feel like it, those are some of the times that I've noticed my faith growing exponentially it's in the moments where I imitate Jesus' way, sometimes out of deep love and connection to the Holy Spirit or love for my neighbor, and sometimes just out of duty. Duty to my Savior, duty to what I say I believe, duty even as petty as it is to, uh, these people know I'm a pastor, so I better do this thing. But it's, it's in these moments of obedience, even out of duty that I have encountered Jesus the most real. It's in the doing that we are formed. Doubt is a natural part of faith formation. If you're not thinking through stuff, if you don't got some questions, if you don't have some places that could stand to grow, you need to re-examine some things. Doubt is a natural part of faith formation. It is part of the process. And Jesus isn't scared of it. He's not mad about it. He's not disappointed in us. Whatever it is that you're scared he thinks or feels, his response to those who had seen it all, the disciples that had been with him up to three years, who had witnessed the miracles, who had heard all the teachings, who had seen Jesus alive after the crucifixion. Some still doubted, and Jesus still commissioned them too. Regardless of where you are on your faith journey today, this morning, wherever it is that you find yourself 
on that path, there is always more Jesus. We are constantly being called forward into the work, into the field, into the mission of the church, and in doing so, that's where we encounter Jesus. Maybe today you need to take that first step in responding to Jesus and accepting that commission. Maybe it's time for you to decide, you know, it's time for me to get baptized and join the church active, the church militant, the church on mission together. Or maybe you've been a part of this family, the the grand family of the church or the family of First Baptist for a long time, but you've You've allowed your faith to drift off into the the private, the personal, the intellectual, the spiritual, and you left Jesus somewhere over there. Maybe you need to take a moment and and decide, I'm going to switch back, I'm going to plug back in. This is, for me, going to be a season of discovering Jesus through the work, of giving Jesus that opportunity to recapture and recommission my life. Wherever you are on that journey, Jesus is ready to meet you. If you need to make a public statement this morning or you just need prayer, I will be down in the front as we sing.